Welcome to Beyond the Edge with your host, Dennis Young. Dennis helps companies solve their most challenging business issues, rapid growth, disruption, and mentorship. Working closely with entrepreneurs, he's experienced the highs and lows of building successful businesses. He's seen people with great ideas fail, while others soar beyond imagination. Why do some succeed while others don't? What is the winning formula? Let's find out. Culture has been defined as an umbrella term which encompasses the social behavior and norms found in human societies. It includes the knowledge, beliefs, arts, laws, customs, and capabilities of individuals in those societies. So how then is culture created and celebrated in great companies? Today, I am delighted to have with me Peter Conlon, celebrated CEO, board member, global leader, tech entrepreneur, and community volunteer. Peter will discuss with us the importance of getting the cultural aspect of your organization right. And of course, what could happen if this is offside. So Peter, welcome. Thank you very much. Peter, when we spoke recently, you reminded me of an old quote from management guru Peter Drucker, who said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. How would you define culture, and does culture really matter? Well, culture, in my experience, is such a multifaceted entity that I need to make it simple because I'm a simple kind of guy. And so when I think of culture, I think of it as the way that an organization interacts and presents itself to its key stakeholders. And the key stakeholders are employees, customers, competitors, partners, etc. And it's more a case of not what you do, but how do you do things. It's how people differentiate you from people who might do a very similar thing. So what might that look like, Peter, in terms of what cultural attributes you would find relatively prominent? Well, let me give you an example of something that would define for me culture. We've all gone to a restaurant and we've all had a less than stellar experience. Maybe a meal came out and it was chilly or something was missing. Culture would define how does that restaurant actually respond to that set of circumstances. We've all been in one where, well, that's just the way it is and you pay the bill and you leave. And we've been in other ones where the the wait staff or whoever is there is empowered to ensure that you have the best meal experience or restaurant experience possible and they do all sorts of things to satisfy you. They might take it off your bill, they might bring you something different, but you know that they're actually focusing on you, not on what it is that they're doing for a living. What results from that? For me as a person, I'll go back to the restaurant that treated me the second way. You certainly remember those positive experiences, don't you? You absolutely do. And it's the same whether you're going to a restaurant, buying a car, flying to Toronto, whatever it is. I read recently that when workplace culture aligns with employee values, 
they are more likely to feel comfortable, supported, and valued. This has to have a tremendous impact on both attracting new employees and retaining existing ones. Do you agree with that? It's the heart of it, Dennis. I mean, if you think about what culture, if you believe what I say, that culture is in many ways how an organization presents itself to its various stakeholders or the parties, your employees are how you present oftentimes to the rest of the world. And so employees need to feel that the organization that they're part of has a culture that resonates with their own personal values. And when, when that happens, when an employee feels that they're working with an entity that actually shares values and modes of operation that they do, they're going to be far and away more integrated and more excited about what they're doing. So that gives me an opportunity to move the discussion to the customer. We've been talking about employees and employee satisfaction and retention. But the customer, as you mentioned with the restaurant, the customer sees culture from the outside looking in. Whether it's a local business where you interact directly with the owner or a multinational with automated processes and AI and bots and all the good things that are coming, all businesses are competing for customer loyalty. So Peter, in your view, how does a business build and maintain a strong culture that translates into both customer loyalty and ultimately financial success? I think what an organization needs to realize that there are, let's say, three aspects to culture. As the leader, you probably have a culture that you think the, your organization either has or should have. It should come from the leader. The second aspect of it is what can you do? But if you can't get your employees engaged, you're not going to be able to be successful. And then the third piece is what will the world allow you to do for regulatory, et cetera. So customers are the ones who perceive your culture more than anybody. They measure your culture. The only entities that really understand your culture are the ones who experience it. And employees do it, but your customers experience it perhaps the most of all. And that is in any format, whether it's an electronic format, whether it's in a face-to-face -face format, whatever it is, how you, again, I'm going back to what I said, what is culture? It's how you interact. How you interact with your customers is perceived by them as defining what your culture is. And it, at the end of the day, it's going to cause them to decide whether they want to do business with you or not, or continue to do business with you or not. Now, in understanding how a business might function and operate, some businesses are high touch. You know, retail, you mentioned restaurants, anything where you have an interaction face-to-face -face with an employee. Others are not. You go on your website or your app and you buy something on Amazon, you really don't see or touch the people. So you may not understand the culture from behind. So does it matter the type of interaction you're having as to whether it needs to have a strong culture? I think the culture is going to permeate the, the relationship you have. If you remember what we were talking about in the restaurant situation, where it's oftentimes going to show up is where things get off the rails. So you're right. You can buy things from Amazon, 
the culture will really show through when what you get isn't what you wanted or it is something or it's broken or whatever it is. How do you respond in those circumstances really defines who you are as an organization. And again, we've all done that. We bought things and they weren't the right size, they weren't the right color or whatever they were. How it played out probably defined whether we would be happy doing business with that organization again. So it isn't unimportant what the mode is. There's a couple of industries or should say a couple of companies I can think of Microsoft, for example, in 2014, completely changed their executive culture. They shifted from an employee culture of proving yourself, i.e. numbers, to improving yourself, which is a focus on the employee, continuous education, continuous training, and so on. Their market cap is close to a trillion dollars right now. So obviously that's worked. Salesforce.com have a very strong philanthropic culture where they give employees 50 to 60 hours every year to volunteer their time. Their stock is um, growing 26% annually, so very successful. A, A contra industry that I have seen in the last few years that have gone the opposite is the banking industry, where it used to be your corner bank is where you went, you knew everybody, you had a relationship, it was very personal. Now you've got 26 points on an IVR to get through before you can even speak to somebody. It's an industry that's really gone the other way. When you think about those two examples, does one of them stand out as, yeah, you know, we should really do that, or we should be careful not to blow up stuff that has really worked well? I think you've just highlighted it in your last 10 words. We got to be careful not to blow up what we have that's good. The culture of an organization should be what it actually stands for. And when you make the sorts of changes, let's look back at the Microsoft example, when you fundamentally change direction, the impact of that on culture is really immeasurable and shows a courage at the highest levels in the organization because you have no idea whether the 250,000 employees that work for you are going to actually believe, most importantly, are they going to believe that you really believe this? Or is this like I saw oftentimes back in the 80s and 90s, the posters on the wall, which which meant nothing other than, well, we should do that because my HR manager told me I should do that. These sorts of fundamental changes which may be necessary by strategy, and I'll go back to your comment about Peter Drucker, you can have a fantastic strategic reason to do X, but if you don't build that in, or you don't build the culture into it, whichever the way it is, I'm not exactly sure, but if you don't include cultural evolution as part of it, you're going to have a decay in culture, and your strategy is going to fail. And so I think what's fantastic is to believe and see and have hope that even huge organizations can make these kinds of changes. Culture growth doesn't have to happen in little companies. It can actually happen in big companies as well. That gives me great hope. Many of our local businesses compete in our local markets. Our culture tends to be very Atlantic or maritime, very friendly, helpful. There's a lot of loyalty to the corner store or the 
the farmer's market and so on. But we're living in a world very interconnected and very, very fast and easy to access competition. It's as close as the apps are on our phones. What can local companies do to maintain that unique local culture, but yet be positioned to compete with the app on the other side of the phone? I think the first thing they need to do is they need to realize that that situation actually exists. And I think, unfortunately, there are many people, I've run into many people who run small businesses here, and they still have a fairly parochial view of the world. And so your local businesses need to realize that the people who are today their customers may tomorrow not be their customers not necessarily because they can find an alternative. So let's say the power that came from face-to-face, which is likely to be different as we go into 2022 and beyond, you can't rely on face-to-face and jawing over the counter as much as you used to do. So you need to realize that you're going to have to provide a value to your customers that your customers decide that they're going to part with their hard-earned cash in order to acquire. So it's going to be tougher. I think being local brings with it, obviously, a certain cachet and a certain um, an opportunity, maybe a little leg up on the competition. But it is going to be harder. At Barrington Edge, we see the world differently. Our multidisciplinary team of strategy consultants, functional experts, designers, and technologists help solve our clients' most challenging business problems. We are professional entrepreneurs who partner with exceptional companies and brilliant inventors to build world-class solutions to address global problems and to help accelerate this innovation to a global stage. I've been reading recently about cultural indicators. Some of the bigger companies measure as a way of getting a handle on how they're doing. So you think about performance, resilience, integrity, psychological safety, and of course, innovation. And I've often heard it said it's very hard to innovate from within because people got day jobs and stuff they have to do. When you think about those indicators that the bigger companies track, when you think of the smaller local companies in any market and anywhere in the world, how can they effectively train and equip their teams to operate with scale on the same peer level as somebody that they may be competing with in a bigger company? Well, you've known me for a while, Dennis, and you know that I'm a heretic, okay? (laughs) And this is one of those places where I am a heretic. Culture belongs to you. You have to live your culture. You can't live the culture that somebody else was successful with. And that extends to the measurements. What works as measurements for a company with 300 employees is unlikely to have the same sort of effect on you where you have nine employees. It's just, it just can't work. I think the most important thing is for every entity to decide, okay, what is our culture? Proactively and actively 
work your culture, understand it, be true to it, and do the things that are necessary in order to make it part of what your organization really is. And I think when you do that, the measurements that you need to make will become more obvious, and they'll be measurements that are important to you rather than the measurements that are important to Salesforce or to Microsoft or et cetera. Now, you speak from experience on that. You know, yeah. you've led international companies that are local, right, that have unique local staffing and, and uh, live within local communities, but have worked abroad in many different countries. When I look at the Atlantic Canadian ecosystem of startups, very strong, very successful, and quite exciting. Startups get to create net new, brand new. So a founder is going to bring a certain way of doing business from their own experience, but they're going to bring in people who probably they have had no relationship previously. Could be staff from afar, could be remote workers, and so on. How does a startup get to do that in a really clever way? Wow. If I had the answer to that, that's what I'd be doing for a living. Is <laughs> But I mean, think about it. The most important thing that you need to do is to hire people who are different than you because they bring different skills, but who are like you in the sense that they value the same things. And I think where we tend to fail, even at small-sized organizations, is we mechanize the hiring, the locating new human resources, because we're not very good at it. I think what we need to do is become more skilled, and we need to help our entrepreneurs become more skilled at the sourcing of talent, especially at a distance, in such a way that you don't dilute what it is that's great about the idea and that can happen. This actually, I, I, me, I don't know if it's going off topic, but I have seen personally the dilution of culture, and it has hurt. I was with an organization, and it was a great organization, and people who were in it felt like they were part of something. The customers would line up in order to do business with us. It had all of the right engine. Then success happened, and with success came the need to source new people. And so we did what oftentimes organizations did, which is we started to source talent from competitors. And what they were actually bringing is we brought in the people who changed culture from within and lost it. And it was awful. And we had a contest inside the company looking for a kind of a phrase to put on the side of the trucks that we had. And there was this young fellow who worked on the shipping dock. And he came up with this thing called Communicate With Us, which I think was beautiful. It, it was simple. It was easy to remember. The new hires said, he can't win this. He can't do that because he's not a marketing guy. He doesn't have the credentials to be able to do it. And I looked at that and I, I near cried because... I knew what was happening. Post-merger integration is a very tricky, tricky yeah. uh, thing to maneuver. And you almost need to get that straight before you start, right? Yeah. How is it going to happen? Yeah. Uh, for sure. Switching gears a little bit to COVID-19 and the pandemic, it's generally felt that organizational culture doesn't change drastically. 
but rather incrementally over long periods of time. The introduction of new technology, new products, perhaps a slight change in focus, maybe a new market, can help change organizations, but only slightly and over, again, over a long period of time. COVID changed all that. So we went from, this is how things are done around here, to, oh boy, what do we do now? Right? How do you think we generally responded to COVID? It was a mixed bag. I mean, if you think about COVID, it's like so many things in life, it presents a downside, and I hate to say it, but an upside for people who realize that it it needed to be addressed. There are organizations, think about Amazon. I mean, COVID was probably the biggest boost in Amazon's history. If you got it right, COVID allowed you to do things in a strategic sense and in a cultural sense that could position you as an organization for what comes next. Think I'll tell you, I was thinking about it this morning as I was driving in here. COVID, it reminded me so much of the 17-year cicadas. You know, uh, you know that there's this, right. they, every 17 years they come, but then on occasion, the sort of the five-year cicadas arrive at the same time. Well, guess what we have? We have COVID, which is once every century. We have a new cohort, the millennials and Gen Z, et cetera, which is every 20 years. We have the introduction of some technologies, partly in response to COVID and partly just because technology is coming in at all time. The last one, astounding polarization in our day-to-day human affairs. These societal impacts are all happening in 2021. I mean, they happened in 2020, but they're happening in 2021. And this is going to present an opportunity for organizations who have the the nerve and the courage to optimize their response to these simultaneous seventh wave type uh, situations and treat employees and customers in ways that are respectful and recognize these sorts of changes. And if you can do that, you're going to have, you can build loyalty even in the face of these overwhelming changes and, and obstacles. Part of that, I think, which is a thing that I'm becoming very interested in these days, Dennis, is the movement from measuring performance not as an input, but as an output. Results measurement. If your job is to sell a million dollars of kit, and you sell a million three and you work two hours a week, maybe I shouldn't be unhappy with you. So that's a good point, Peter, and uh, lots of research coming out. I'm reading some uh, yesterday from Harvard on the future of work. And, uh, you know, it's been talked about for a couple of years, this notion of a four-day work week and so on. But you're right. The output is really more important than the input. The things that we used to measure in hours or nine to five or whatever it might be. I mean, Europe changed it 25 years ago with 27 bank holidays, and yet they still managed to do extremely well. When we think about the companies that did well, we are hearing about things like transparency from the leadership, honesty, telling it like it is, telling employees what the hard lessons are. 
but also involving employees in the program and then operating, obviously, with honesty and integrity. These are things that we're reading about. And I'm just wondering, with this level of transparency and honesty, how will that survive COVID? And what will it look like in terms of business practices going forward? You have no choice for it to survive. And the reason for that, in my view, is that the next generation of workers is going to demand it of us. You know, I'm doing some work right now with uh, an individual who's in the transportation industry. And this person said to me, their biggest challenge right now is finding the next 28-year-old operator. They think in a very different way. Things that we didn't really understand are very important to them. Diversity, inclusion, the environment. It's not that we're bad people. These are not the things that we thought about as we were growing up and, or let's say, joining the workforce. To them, this is fundamental, and they will make decisions about which companies they'll work for and what companies they'll buy from based on how those companies honestly, again, not posters on the wall, but how they actually operate in that. So, you know, these sorts of changes of how do we address circumstances in times of need are going to be fundamental to our ability to find the people who come and join our organizations. It's a guarantee. Large footprint type industries, governments, universities, large institutions, where typically lots of people come to a place to go to work. People have found meaning in ritual. Getting up, getting dressed, going to work, picking up your coffee on the way in, chatting with a coworker, sharing family. I just had a new baby or my son's getting married. You know, these are all rituals that we've come to accept, even catching the go train. Those have been social norms. COVID changed a lot of that, and uh, we're probably going to see some of it come back. Just curious about that social interaction, that bonding that happens when you're with somebody, that face-to-face rapport, building of trust. How does that work over Zoom, for example? I think what's really going to happen is we're going to self-select. There are going to be some people for whom that is really important. Interesting thing I read very recently. They interviewed a huge number of people in Ontario. I think it was 1,100 people in some very large footprint organizations, OTPP, big banks, et cetera. 50% of them were thinking of leaving their organizations. Wow, it's a big number. What happened, what COVID did is it kind of broke the spell for a little while. And so that these people who were living on the GO train and the Don Valley Parkway and the 401 for the last 15 to 20 years finally saw what it was like not to do that. And they said, oh, man, I know I'm making six and seven figures a year, but this just isn't worth it. And I think that what we're going to see over the next couple of years is this self-selecting of really talented people who, some of whom are going to say, I need it, and they're going to come back to the office and they're going to create offices, and other ones are going to say, this is not going to work for me. And 
That is going to point to organizations needing to have a culture that resonates with two fundamentally different breeds of customers and but employees in this case. Because if you are a measure by input, be in the office, big footprint, I can tell you that in that one thing, 50% of the people you might want on your team are saying to you, no, thank you. (laughs) It's going to be interesting to see. Just in doing some research for this today, I came across the MIT Sloan School of Business Cultural 500 Index. I didn't know it existed, but I guess it does. So much like the S&P 500, there's a Cultural 500 Index. And it measures nine cultural dimensions, agility, collaboration, customer orientation, diversity, execution, innovation, integrity, and respect. In 2020, they selected 21 companies who excelled across those nine. Some of the names you'll recognize, Accenture, Toyota, MasterCard, Hilton, and Netflix, a newcomer to the group. These are large companies, obviously can invest Uh, significant resources in those cultural norms and those indices. As we look beyond COVID to getting back to business, which of those indices do you think will survive to become very important, not only for those big companies, but business or organizations in general? I was very intrigued by your last example, Netflix. Not exactly a bricks and mortar company. So here you have a company that for all intents and purposes is just a, da- a download service. You don't really talk with anybody. You sign up for it online. You pay your bill online. You order stuff online. If you have a problem, you send it online. So I think the fact that it's inclusion in the list suggests that the sort of the cultural dimensions that they're measuring must have some relevance in the types of businesses that we're going to be seeing in the future. I find that fascinating. You know, I mean, a a Toyota, you could understand. You have hundreds of thousands of people who make stuff and et cetera. Those list of factors all make great sense to me. But I'll go back to something I said a little earlier. You need to appreciate, cherish, measure, water and feed those which are appropriate for you, not the ones that are necessarily appropriate for Toyota, because it's when you try to be what you're not that you fail. And you mentioned something really interesting early in this conversation about, you know, post-acquisition needing to spend a moment to do this right before it you start, well, it's exactly this. If you're going to become mindful of your culture and how it impacts your ability to interact with employees and with customers, you need to start from the beginning and say, what is our culture? What really means it? What does it mean to us? Does everybody in the organization believe? Does everybody in the organization practice? You know, there's a lot of work that needs to go into this, and it's probably some small subset of those nine dimensions. But if they're the right ones for you, you can accelerate your success by having great focus on things that are appropriate. 
Fascinating, Peter. This has been a great conversation. I, I'm taking away a couple of notes. One is, it seems to me that if employees feel respected, if they're recognized for their efforts, if they feel safe, if there's diversity within the ranks so that there is a, a broad base of, of inclusive ideas and suggestions coming, if management are transparent and open and honest, then you've got a very strong base to project to the customer who can't help but notice it. And if a customer notices it, they will continue to come back. And that's going to drive ultimately the success of the business. So They're going to tell their friends. They'll tell their friends and so on. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Edge. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Peter Conlon. Tune in next week for another great story on the winning formula for how to grow a successful company. Barrington Edge blends strategy, design, and technology to build global solutions to global problems. To learn more, visit barringtonedge.com.